Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. There's a long tradition of these are great jobs, right? It's great to work in Hollywood. It's great to make things that, you know, touch people's lives all over the world. And a lot of the, you know, the way people were paid was based on, you know, how you did this year. And then suddenly if you, you know, if you were suddenly like, hey, you know, you're not going to be paid based on how well Harry Potter did this year because actually we're going to be losing money for the next 10 years. Um, it would be hard to get people to, to sort of fundamentally re- focus away from away from that. So I, there was probably a, a you know a certain amount of self-delusion that the the party would go on, you know, if not indefinitely then forever. Now streaming, Richard Siklos, a veteran media junkie who has gone from authoring books and writing for the New York Times Business Week and Fortune to the very highest echelons of corporate communications for Time Warner and Netflix. How did Netflix come out of seemingly nowhere to disrupt Hollywood? Is the dream of marrying content and distribution always bound to turn into a nightmare? And where to next for Fox News, The Wall Street Journal, and CNN? Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others. And follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me from Tinseltown, it is a joy to have him on finally, is Richard Siklos. He was recently VP of Corporate Communications at Netflix, where he had been from 2017 to just now, 2021. Prior to that, he was over at Time Warner, VP of Corporate Affairs and Strategic Communications for over seven years. Before that, we had crossed paths at the New York Times. He was at Fortune Magazine. In addition to these roles, he's written several books on Canadian media barons. He was on the board of directors for the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. Uh, sir, how are you? I'm great, Robin. Thanks for thanks for having me. Well, I love to cover myself in, in glory, as I told you, in being a curator for these interesting guests. You had this random walk down content. Back in 2005, when I was at business school, you and I crossed paths at the New York Times, where our, our editor, Larry Ingrassi, had brought you to cover the business side, I guess, of, of media. And entertainment. Yes. And it was an interesting yes. time. I mean, there was a lot of egg on the face of uh, the Time Warner AOL mega merger, which they were in the process of undoing, widely looked at as the worst merger in history. But you were still a journalist covering that. And after that, you went to Fortune magazine and did much of the same. But then something happened where you crossed the line, the Rubicon, and, and went into corporate communications. Tell me about that. Sure. Um, well, actually, before I worked at the New York Times, I had been I'd spent a few years where I was actually kind of a media consultant. And I was still doing some I had a, like a foot in both worlds. I was teaching at NYU and I was writing a column in, in the Telegraph in England. Mm. And then I was but I was like sort of secretly consulting on some media things. So I had that sort of taste of business and I thought it made me a better journalist. I don't know if that's true or not, but I already had the bug is the truth. But when there's, as I think you discovered, Robin, when, the, when Larry and the New York Times call, you know, you, you heed the call 
Um, so I went back into journalism full time. And then, you know, I'd, I'd mostly been covering, and it wasn't by design, but I was covering the business of media, the sort of, you know, the intersection with technology, the, you know, the sort of the cultural, the shaping of culture through these right. forces. And so, you know, so that just kind of became my thing. I taught about it. I wrote a couple of books about it. And then suddenly I could go, you know, I got lured into going uh, to Time Warner, as you said, and which, you know, ironically, Time Warner had owned Fortune, which was my last journalism job. And um, and then one of the first things we worked on at Time Warner was kind of the dismantling, as you say, of of the separation of Time Inc., which was once the mightiest of all magazine companies. So how, how does that how does that even happen? Richard Parsons, who I believe was the CEO at the time, what in in uh no, no pun intended. He sees you in the elevator bank or you go to Columbus Circle. You guys were in the Time Inc. building. You were in a there's a whole different church and state dynamic there. Yeah, it was it wasn't that dramatic. Um so I was in I'd moved to LA with Fortune. Um and um and then Jeff Bucus became the CEO. So so um and then this when was the Bukas, HBO, this was the HBO guy. Yes, this is when correct, Time the guy who ran HBO. Yeah. Exactly. So 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 Dick Parsons was kind of the person who saved the company from basically disappearing under the waves after the AOL merger. And then he did that for a few years and then sort of handed it to Jeff to sort of take it to take it to its conclusion. And then, as you probably know, Dick went off to do the same thing at Citigroup. And um, anyway, so the guy he hired to oversee all of sort of communications and marketing had worked for Rupert Murdoch, a guy named Gary Ginsburg. And we had sparred, you know, we'd sparred. We knew each other sure. a long time because the Times, as you know, uh, was very critical and its coverage still is of anything Murdoch related. And obviously, if you're on the media beat in the 1990s, 2000s, the story is Murdoch. He was, you know, the most astonishing, influential um, kind of media baron, whatever you want to call it, mm. of that time. So anyway, Gary and I had a kind of grudging respect for each other. And he and he took a job at uh, working for Bu as, as Bucus's new person. And he called me and he said, hey, would you ever consider leaving journalism and coming to work, you know, here. And I said, sure. And so that that's what happened. No elevator involved. <laughs> no elevator involved. This is going back to the landmark deal. And right now it is it is ancient, ancient, ancient history. I mean, several bubbles and, and consolidation cycles ago. Anybody can go and Google it. AOL Time Warner at the turn of the century it was January 2000. This breathless deal with a company that was synonymous with the Internet there. Then America Online, which was looking to spend its hundreds of billions of dollars of market capitalization on something more permanent. You had this older kind of Tony, you know, media empire in Time Warner, which had the magazines, Time, People, Sports Illustrated, Fortune. It had CNN. It had HBO, which uh, by then, you know, the Sopranos and Sex and the City were all the rage. It had a movie studio, TBS, TNT, and AOL, uh, I was like, I, I remember the play was, well, we get all of this content. We're going to uh, cross-pollinate left and right. Uh, we will buy a high-speed internet provider in Time Warner Cable so we could roll out broadband. And yet none of that transpired. It made so much sense on paper. But within months, it was obvious as the internet bubble exploded that this was a poorly thought out merger. Culturally, the guys did not get along. And by the time you're there, the best hope was in kind of how to break this company apart to unlock shareholder value. Uh, yes, uh, totally. And, and just a side, minor side note, but I was at Business Week magazine. I was the media editor there at the time of that deal. And I actually co-wrote the cover story, which with the headline was Deal of the Century, 
with a photo of uh, Steve Case and Gerald Levin. It was meant, to, funnily enough, it was ironic. I mean, it, was, it was sort of a mocked up, you know, Time Man of the Year, uh, as it was then called, cover. And it was deal of the century with them, to the, them and, and, the, and a lot of readers were upset because they thought we were being like credulous instead of like having a, like a moment of irony, which was very rare for, for news magazines around that era. But yeah, so by the time I got there, the, to the tenor of the whole situation had changed and Bukas's era was seen as a sort of steady hand where... So remind me, Bukas was, was, the C, was, the, was the president of HBO, which was a standout. Yes. Correct. So Bukas was the president of HBO, and HBO had this. It, it was actually Warner Brothers and HBO were were. It's, it was an interesting construction, right? Because Warner Brothers and HBO were sort of gold standard companies in their fields. HBO pay television, Warner Films, and television. More recently, television, and then Turner, which was actually actually one of the most successful media mergers of all time, was when Time Warner had merged with Turner. Was this incredible cash machine with all those cable channels you mentioned? But but the prestige and the kind of legacy laid within HBO, which, again, minor side note for those who care, was actually created within Time, Inc. So it was kind of like a full circle thing. And Hold on, hold Jeff, on. HBO yeah. was created inside the magazine empire? Correct. Because Time, Inc. No Time had been, you know, before it merged with Warner, the, all these media companies, it's their temptation always to become kind of conglomerates of some, of some sort of, uh, in their own right, because... You know, every media executive of the last 50 years has has directionally understood that, you know, the business is fundamentally changing and that the actual like product that you produce today may not actually be what people want tomorrow. So they seeded some cable channels. Um, there was all kind. there was some complicated, I think, you know, even MTV might have been stuck in some partnership there at some point. I can't remember. But HBO was certainly I believe it was a joint venture between HBO and maybe American Express originally oh yeah um, that's right between time inc i mean and um anyway but so, just the point being like jeff was sort of legacy in a way he was sort of you know he wasn't time inc but he he grew up in that system and he was like the person who could sort of restore the greatness and the thing that he understood was that through all these shenanigans of the culture clash and the and the the hype about the internet that turned out not to be true at least as far as aol was concerned was that Warner Brothers and HBO were like really prestigious, valuable companies and Turner was a cash machine. So he was just trying to like keep the, you know, he just said, let's just focus on the businesses that actually have growth in them and potential and then can maybe eventually make that transition that everyone knew was coming at some point. You know, I remember in the 90s, you know, we, it was called convergence, you know, it's like over the overused yeah. word of the 90s, convert the convergence of distribution and production and technology and um but didn't it make sense, Richard? I'm I'm thinking back, and I lived in Manhattan, and I had a Time Warner Time Warner Roadrunner internet connection, and it would not dovetail with AOL customer service at all. The the sides did not speak. I mean, Time Warner Internet didn't even know the HBO side of the business or anything else no. like that. If I wanted to be an early cord cutter and say, look, I just want to get this stuff. Not even over. We weren't even using Wi-Fi much. I just want to get this stuff over a connection. Give me a software way of getting it on my laptop or something like this. There was no way to do this back when it was AOL Time Warner, even though they had the fat pipes, even though they had all of this content, the Sopranos, again, sex in the city, anything HBO has done independently over the years, you know, sports with this or, or real sex or all of the CNN archival footage. Um, it never occurred to them that this convergence was headed that way. Yeah, well, I think they understood that it was coming conceptually. And then just, you know, 
interestingly, you know, in the background is this little company called Netflix, right? Which didn't earnestly begin stream, you know, offering a streaming service to to people until you know later in the 2000s, right? So the time, so the AOL Time Warner merger is two th- is 99, 2000. You know, Netflix is really like a product of like 2010. You know, is really when it starts to kick into gear. So, so yeah, like they, you know, the the pro, you know, I don't think it's Warren Buffett or somebody who's being being early or being late is the same is the same as being wrong, right? It's like people understood what was happening, but they didn't have the the tools or the means or the wherewithal or the political ability to break down fiefdoms to to mm. sort it out that early, or things just happened in the natural course that they were meant to happen, and the timing was off for the incumbents. I don't know. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Richard Siklos, veteran uh, media correspondent. He was at the New York Times, Fortune, Business Week. Most recently was VP of Corporate Communications at Netflix. And prior to that, uh, VP of Corporate Affairs and Strategic Communications at uh, Time Warner, which was then acquired by AT&T before AT&T then spit it out again. But we'll get to that. I got to ask you, I'm thinking back to my first interaction with Netflix, which was kind of gee whiz, wow, circa 2005 when you and I worked together. I think I got my first Netflix mail-in DVD plan. Maybe it was three or four a month. And that was pretty amazing for an outsider to come in and make a profitable go at other people's content. But something happened, and I faintly remember the late Roger Ebert writing a column for Business Week, maybe in 2011 or 2012, saying that Netflix, for as successful as it's been with mail-in DVDs, it really has to disrupt itself. Um, It needs to start charging for streaming separately and DVDs separately because the future is in streaming i.e. without a DVD-ROM drive on your computer and a, you know the, the U.S. mail and whatnot. And moreover, the future is going to be in Netflix producing its content. When did you feel that tipping point, even before you joined Netflix? Um, it's interesting. So I was a journalist at Fortune in, dates are all fuzzy, right, Robin, at this point, I think 2008. Uh, mm. And I remember I interviewed Ted Sarandos, who I, who is now the you know the co-CEO of Netflix, along with Reed Hastings, and at the Paley Center in New York. So as a journalist, just interviewing him on, on one of these you know breakfast panels, and and I remember even then he was like, we're very focused on you know yes we're starting to dabble and experiment in streaming, but we also you know at that we're not ready to give up on the growth potential in in DVDs or the the demand for them. But they obviously knew. They they had a very they made a huge bet that they knew which way the world was headed and um, I'm trying to think when I you know the thing for me to be honest and so I'm, you know wearing more of my journalist hat on this than my my former Netflix employee hat was I remember being surprised when suddenly I realized everyone was watching Netflix on their televisions because I was like oh it's so cool like when streaming started because remember streaming really the, the sort of the earliest memories I have of wow streaming is amazing is like first of all like the Bill Clinton impeachment, watching it over dial up on a, like an island in in Canada somewhere with some with a bunch of people crowded around a lot. Oh no, and, and more. You know, and, you and I yeah. when you were at the time when we were at the Times, we covered Live Aid that yeah. summer. Live, Live Aid, Aid where just totally. multi YouTube. Yeah, I was gonna say YouTube was really that was like, the thing that, that, that was AOL. That minds. was it. That was yeah. AOL. Even prior prior to YouTube, AOL tried right. to make a go at kind of That's streaming, right. and so. It took a huge leap of faith yeah. for them to say that the bandwidth was going to be there for streaming, that the hardware, which you know nobody knew what a Roku was, nobody knew what an Apple no. TV was, unless you were really in kind of techie wonk territory. And I'm just amazed that at some point, an outsider who, again, was distributing other people's content on plastic discs 
was able to kind of make the disruptive leap of faith to say that we need to go out and spend buku bucks on an original production <laughs> like House of Cards. House of right. Cards for me was a kind of a turning point where enough people were talking about Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright that, you know what, I'm going to go check this out. And the interface was great. And wow, you could watch it all in one sitting. And I don't have to wait for another DVD. I don't have to wait for the season. You know, the, the commercials and the Michigas of Sunday night, that was a real aha moment, I imagine, for, for both the viewing populace and for Netflix corporate. Yeah, although although you know, observation of Netflix is that it again it's a it's a culture of um, sort of moving fast and trying a lot of things, and when you try them, try them big to see if they succeed big. And I have heard Ted say at the time that you know House of Cards was you know it was a big bet, but it wasn't like a break the company bet. And if it hadn't worked out, they would have tried something else. But to my earlier point, it was like the leap from there was. If you're watching these shows on your computer, which, as you say, Live Aid and AOL and then YouTube came along and it kind of trained you that you can like actually watch things on a laptop. It was astonishing that suddenly Netflix was suddenly on every TV, you know, and that that Netflix button was suddenly on every uh, remote control. And I would just, you know, I, th I think you've had people on the show before who've like Ed Lee, who've talked about the nature of Hollywood entertainment and the windows and the sort of, you know, they're, they're mostly wholesale companies that aren't used to dealing directly with consumers. And so this, you know, they were always like selling to the selling to Comcast or somebody who would then package it up and sell it to you and me um, through a cable bundle. But, you know, what was required to like your house of cards is absolutely like a, a huge moment in the history of streaming uh, and entertainment. But like simultaneous was this sort of like getting it right to get it in front, you know, to make it easy for everyone to actually like enjoy the thing. And I think that's where that's what kind of blew my mind. Right. And it was the same. And, and in that sense, it was very similar to DVDs, which was like, oh, I can just like get these sent to my house and not have to pay late fees and go into Blockbuster and be frustrated and things like that. And it's mind boggling. You know, th this has been one of the best performing stocks on the market over the past 10 years. If I go to August of 2011, uh, way back then, and, and, you know, the strategy was hardly solidified back then. It was still largely a DVD mailing service. Uh, the stock was, it's a $33 stock Netflix. It has since soared to $630. The market capitalization is at $280 billion. It is easily larger than most media conglomerates and telecoms and everything. And it would have been inconceivable back then that an outsider, somebody to kind of, you know, it would have been risible that this guy, these guys would have disrupted yeah. Disney or Warner Brothers and the others. And I just got to ask you strategically, if you're teaching this in a J school, or if you're lecturing media executives and the likes, um, why were so many of these media companies content to license out their content to Netflix for so long before it occurred to them to put it up behind their own kind of proprietary paywalls? Um, I think they sort of got boxed in by their own business models. Again, I think they were aware of it and, and you saw a lot of um, kind of half steps in that direction. I remember when Disney was, you know, Disney was the first um, company with ABC. They created like a, I can't remember what it was called. It was an app or it was like a, a widget or something where you could watch ABC shows on a computer. And it was considered with, with Apple. They did a kind of a partnership. It was pretty, it was pretty yeah. half baked. I remember trying yeah. to watch lost, lost yeah. the other ones on it. And I was like, so if they I knew could watch it, lost, yeah. right. They, they knew they just, you know, I, I think, you know, again, speaking from my experience at time Warner, I think the, the dilemma that, um, that that company faced was, they having been through the sort of scar tissue of the AOL merger, they didn't have the the buy-in. The investors were, you know, the stock actually did very well under Jeff Bucus, 
And that was partly because he laid out a strategy that they could buy into and believe versus what happened with AOL. So you had to get to this point where basically large pools of investors would say, we're willing to take the heat of losses, you know, sustained losses over a long period of time to get to a better outcome. And as you know, that tends to be an internet, you know, a tech company yeah. kind of evaluation thing. And, and, you know, it's funny, Disney started doing it recently. They, you know, they kind of went to investors and said, look, we're going to double down very heavily on Disney Plus and their investors are, are believers. But I think the world had to get to a point that it wasn't at, you know, 10, 15 years ago in order for this to happen. So these companies, I think they were like somewhat hamstrung and on a sort of more granular level, I think a lot of the, you know, mm. there's a long tradition of these are great jobs, right? It's great to work in Hollywood. It's great to, it's great to make things that, you know, touch people's lives all over the world. And a lot of the, you know, the way people were paid was based on, you know, how you did this year. And then suddenly if you, you know, if you were suddenly like, Hey, you know, you're not going to be paid based on how well Harry Potter did this year, because actually we're going to be losing money for the next 10 years. Um, it would be hard to get people to to sort of fundamentally refocus away from away from that. So I, there was probably a, a you know a certain amount of self delusion that the the party would go on you know if not indefinitely then forever. Um, and wow. part of the party wow. was selling stuff to Netflix, right? And it so Netflix was Net Netflix was happy to pay for this stuff, whether it was from Warner Brothers, Disney, the other players. This was kind of they didn't want to self disrupt internally for political reasons, for fiefdom reasons, for silo reasons. I imagine, right? That, yeah. That they, this was a this was a valuable cash flow stream to them. If you think about Friends on Netflix, if you think about Lost on Netflix, I don't know Breaking Bad, any other series or anything that Disney. Before Disney realized that, wow, we have a whole library of stuff that's super valuable yeah. to parents with kids. And, you know, we're acquiring the Star Wars library and Pixar. We shouldn't just farm this out to third party distributors. Exactly. I mean, if you remember this, but in, and I'm, I'm not going to have the years right. But early in those early days, Netflix had again, but before like a company like HBO or Stars had figured out how to go direct to consumers. Um, Netflix did a deal with Stars. Which in stars then had the um, had the Disney catalog. I think it had Sony also, and that's nuts. <laughs> and for like really little money, you could basically get you know the equivalent of subscribing to stars through Netflix for very little money to Netflix basically. And I think that was a huge you know they basically had Disney at like you know at a super discount um, for a long time. And I think a lot of media company executives were like, oh, people are just watching it on their laptops. Kind of to my previous point, like it's not the same as really. You know, it doesn't have the same value as the traditional forms of of distribution do. But that turned out to be a mistake. And then, you know, when that deal finally, when they finally wised up and ended that deal, um, Netflix then stepped up again and actually licensed the Disney catalog directly from Disney. So at least Disney was making the money. It was it felt like they were getting their money's worth out of being on Netflix at that time. I gotta, I, I gotta ask you a question, Richard. Uh, to, sure. to the extent that you were at Time Inc., you, you, at Time Warner, you had gone to the corporate communication side. Prior to that, you were at Fortune Magazine on the Time Inc. side. It was very abundant by the time Jeff Bucus was in charge and was going to break up the company, and the stock was valuable again, and AT and T was value. I'm sorry, uh, HBO was valuable. CNN and the other, you know, you're looking at a sum of the parts company. They spun off cable. That by the time they spun off. Uh, Time Inc. There was a lot of fear and loathing in the magazine world that Fortune was going to have to fend for itself. Time Magazine, these storied 
brands, as you know, and, and, and this is what drew me to the magazine industry. I wanted to work for Fortune. I heard about this legendary drink cart that would go around during magazine <laughs> yes. clothes. The expense yeah. accounts at the turn of the century, the magazines were like phone books. You could throw them down. It was like FUD, you know? Totally. And that all went away. And they not only did that, they disposed of them and they saddled them with debt. And it had a very sad run as a public company. And then parts were broken off. I mean, people was sold to someone. A Thai billionaire bought Fortune. Uh, Time Magazine was bought by the CEO of, of Salesforce.com. Yep. You kind of needed a billionaire savior, but by no means were these companies liberated. Uh, no, they weren't. And, and you know, it, it was, that's a tough one too, because I had the same dream, you know, growing up to be a journalist, um, writing for, you know, big, glossy, long form magazines was the dream. Um, and when I was at Fortune, I think the masthead was like 70 people or something. And I'm sure today it's, I haven't looked at it lately, but I, I'd be surprised if it's more than 20 um, mm. who, who worked there full time. To your point. And it's just, it was interesting, you know, so it was funny. I was a media reporter and I, and I was also in the media. So it was just interesting for me to live. I got to see all sides of it at every place I worked, right? I got to see how they, everyone had a theory about how people wanted to consume um, their, you know, the, the shift you know, from pivot, print. Pivot to video, to pivot, pivot to video, pivot, social pivot to media, video. Events, Are we going to charge? Events, Are we going right. to, is it advertising? Yeah. You know, it was all back and forth. I worked at this really, in, in the minds of those who work there and a few others, you know, kind of uh, epic uh, internet startup called Inside.com um, oh, with yes. Dave, David Carr and Kurt Anderson and Michael Hershorn and all these cool people. Was um, that at the start at Lehigh Building in Chelsea? It sure was, yeah. Uh, I in, worked in, there as well. I worked there. That was yeah. a building with a truck elevator and you would occasionally see Martha Stewart. I mean, it was a, it yes. was a final vestige of the dot-com boom and there was great writing and I heard a story that the the – the owner between like a Mets doubleheader came to unplug the business. Was it right? Stephen Brill? There's some <laughs> um, I legend was gone about it. by then. I don't know. I was, I was unfortunately gone. Guys, I have, a, I have a Mets game to catch, but uh, you're all, you're, yeah. you're all out of work or something like that. Yeah, but, no, you know, we, we all have was, these old stories. <laughs> but anyway, but the point being, I remember that like, you know, how do we charge? How do we sell advertising? How, you know, how, how long should a story, how, you know, can you write a 4,000 word feature and put it online? Is it a slideshow? Like how much video was this endless and still to this day, maybe not entirely resolved question of the optimal business model for, you know, for shifting these great brands online. And that's, you know, that's why when you look at the list of the top downloaded app brands on Apple at any given time, you don't tend to see companies that existed, you know, more than a few years ago. Full disclosure, stay with us. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fullderadio.com. Please subscribe. Read about us if you feel so inclined and uh, recommend the show to friends and family. Additionally, we are on the air up in Northern Virginia and in parts of Washington, D.C. on WERA 96.7 FM. You can catch us down on WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, KPPQ out west in Ventura, and holler if you too would like us on your air. If you're just joining us, I'm talking to Richard Siklos, who recently decamped from Netflix, where he was VP of Corporate Communications for four years. Prior to that, he was uh, at Time Warner for over seven years as VP of Corporate Affairs and Strategic Communications. I'm fascinated by Richard's career because prior to that, he was a very well-known media correspondent at uh, the New York Times, at Fortune Magazine, at Business Week. He talked about his stint at the short-lived Inside Magazine. Uh, let me ask you about your experience, just to rewind back a little bit, at Time Warner. 
sure. by the time all the decks were cleared at Time Warner and they made all of these divestitures of magazines and, you know, Time Warner Cable and gosh, all of these little, you know, what was it? Uh, music. What, what is it that? Was music was the music, yeah. Time Warner music. They had a gossip thing as well. I don't know. AOL was TMZ, completely yeah. gone. Yeah. TMZ. In comes in. All right. In walks in Ma Bell. Uh, AT&T with an $85 billion mega deal to buy Time Warner. Was this in 2018? It was, uh, I think it was announced in, in 16 and then didn't. Oh, that's right. It was announced in 16 and I left toward the end of 17. And then, of course, then the Justice Department sued them and it dragged on for ever after that. And I thought maybe the wisdom back then was these guys realized, OK, now AT&T wasn't about the copper wires to the house and the old landline and, you know, 25 cent collect calls and everything. It was decidedly about AT&T wireless. That was the cash flow that would make or break them. They made some disastrous forays into satellite television. They own some other things. But maybe they reasoned that if we get this star bobble in HBO, HBO, whatever you want to call it, through Time Warner and CNN and these other things, and we are able to put this behind our subscriber walls, then we're going to make an AT&T subscription super valuable as a differentiator to Verizon and, and T-Mobile. And right. back then, there was even Sprint. In theory, right? The quadruple player, whatever it was called. In yeah. practice, it never worked. In practice, they were under tremendous pressure to come out with HBO Max and to keep up with the Netflixes of the world and everything. And they promptly announced uh, in uh, in 2021 that they were going to disgorge it. They were spinning off its media assets from the deal to combine with Discovery to create yes. a content giant. So deja vu all over again. It's like AT&T didn't study the, what, the the folly of, of Time Warner and AOL at the yeah. turn of the century? Which, by the way, was... So Time Warner Cable, the, the sort of the fundamental flaw, um, aside from them not un understanding the evolution from broadband to high speed, which was no small thing, but they merged with AOL, same thing, but Time Warner Cable had a relatively small footprint. Like it didn't cover a big chunk of the country. I can't remember if it was 10 or 20% of the country. So therefore you couldn't have any like ex like exclusivity didn't matter right because you're still right. you still need to sell to everyone else and it didn't give you much of an advantage i mean if it gave you an advantage in 20 percent of the country it might have not have been worth worth doing a deal over at all and so yeah. so so you know i think some people have said well maybe the the master plan would have been to then try to scoop up you know as much other cable entities as you could have but that obviously didn't work out and then it was very similar with at&t where t as you say they didn't have the, the, the notion of exclusivity didn't really work. I mean, the, the two things, and I worked on this so I could say with good memory, the two premises were that, that we focused the most on were revolutionizing advertising, um, uh, the future of advertising, and that maybe having all these consumer, direct consumer relationships that AT&T had through all their mobile phone accounts would, would allow more targeted and more valuable But hold on, Richard, at, at its heart, at its heart, you had a Texas-based regional bell like the offspring of Baby bell the, the, this at&t with southwestern bell uh southern bell all of these other you know at&t singular everything what was it i don't even remember pack bell they were all kind of rolled up and reconstituted again and they they got ambitious and they decided maybe we just didn't want to be dumb yeah capacity we wanted to have content and this content empire was freely available shorn of these various other things that it wanted to spin off why is, is it that, that the demands for content, there was such an arms race for 
to create the next Sopranos or the next Lord of the Rings or other things that that these cultures ultimately didn't jive? Well, I don't know. As I say, the other the other premise of the deal was that they would innovate faster. Because remember my point about how a company like Time Warner couldn't afford to take the huge hit of of losing money while they're building a, a more digital direct business. So the theory, and, and in a way, AT&T did do that. They got HBO Max off the ground in a kind of bigger um, fashion. You know, the jury is out on how, you know, where it ends up. But they did get it out the door in a way that probably, you know, standalone Time Warner couldn't have done. But um, why? Why? Explain that. I know this is a little wonky, but why would a telco, which has significant capital infrastructure? I mean, everybody's clamoring for 5G. They're saying that your satellite strategy stinks. There are still some landline homes that they're neglecting with broadband. Why would a telco be given? And they have to pay a fat dividend, which they had never slashed. Right. So why would they be given the pass from uh, uh, Wall Street and not the pure play media company. And again, well, they you go back been. to your experience. But... <laughs> they were dreaming big. Number one, you know, I it's see. Hollywood. You dream big. Number two, it is a you know, Time Warner. I think was only sixteen percent of the revenue of AT and T at the time they did the deal. So in a way, the cost of you know absorbing whatever, however many billions of dollars it would take to build the digital business was a relatively small cost in a much bigger across a much bigger base i mean everything you're saying is right about the dividend and everything else and obviously it didn't work out anywhere near the way they planned it would but that was part of the thinking at the time is like hey it's not you know it's it's 16 percent of our revenue but it could you know it could ensure you know a, a more glorious future for the overall entity if we get this right and then obviously things didn't go as they'd hoped it's ancient history now, October 2016. I'm reading from uh, the the kind of the postmortem that CNBC wrote. In October 2016, AT&T announced its plans to buy Time Warner. Uh, the CEO of AT&T called the pair, quote, a perfect match in a statement accompanying the release. AT&T touted the, quote, complementary strengths of the two businesses, which it said would allow it to deliver customers premium content from Time Warner to every screen through its network. Quote, A big customer pain point is paying for content once but not being able to access it on any device anywhere. Our goal is to solve that, the CEO said. We intend to give customers unmatched choice, quality, value, and experiences that will define the future of media and communications. Well, no, they had to spit it out. They had to cut the dividend. And what do you think about Time Warner Discovery? Wasn't that an interesting dance partner for them. I mean, I understand that Discovery does very well on the cable dial and has all sorts of valuable programming, but wouldn't you have shacked up with someone else like a Comcast or, you know, someone else that had more of a distribution footprint? Well, you know, I think Discovery has actually been very shrewd. Um, They had, they launched a direct to consumer Discovery plus, I think it's called like everyone else's and it's, it's done fairly well. and, And they're also very, international which is again one of the huge differentiators for i think the the ones that are going to make it and the ones are not that they're not just us based but so going back to the the thesis around time warner i think this is now now it's an independent you know pure entertainment company but i think it's one that probably has a little more and again it's two, it's 3 years 4 years later god 6 years later look at that and, and by next year so maybe more buy in from investors about the kind of transformation that these companies are going through and what their potential growth could be. So it actually it it makes a it makes much more sense today than it would have made in, in as an alternative to AT&T back then is what I would say. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Richard Siklos who recently left Netflix where he was VP of Corporate Communications for 4 years. Prior to that, he was at Time Warner as VP of Corporate Affairs and Strategic Communications. 
Let me ask you about the, the the content arms race right now. What do you think about this? And I've brought it up with other guests before, login fatigue, right? Netflix is table stakes. You kind of have to have it. You have to have a music streamer such as Spotify or Apple Music. The others strike me as decidedly optional. I mean, Hulu, I still don't know what it is. It's now completely controlled by Disney. But if I want to get Disney Plus movies for my kids, that's a whole separate other login. If I want to get ESPN, which is also controlled by Disney, which also owns Hulu, if I just to remind everybody, mm-hmm. I have to get a separate streamer there. And then meanwhile, there are other other ones that are pounding on my door. HBO Max. Let's not forget about that. Let's not forget about Showtime Paramount. Um, I, I brought this up before. It's like it's as if you have to reassemble the cable dial a la carte by yourself. And so what did we accomplish over the past seven years? So it's fun. So, you know, you're actually asking the the, wrong, the most wrong person, right? Because I love every one of them. I love all of it. And it makes perfect sense to me. But I do understand what you're saying. Um, it's a very that's my very coastal view. But um, I think it's kind of what we we're saying earlier, though, which is it's all a work in progress. And people haven't figured out the optimal number of services and the optimal way to access them. And there is an arms race going on, um, undoubtedly. But it, but the, you know, the bigger, the sort of the, the less exciting story, the streaming wars was always like a sexy construct, but the less exciting story is it's really about getting people off of the, you know, off of the declining traditional television platform into more of these streaming services, which is where, you know, um, your kids and, and, and my kids, like it's second nature to them that everything is on demand and having to like flip around between a few apps isn't really not a, it's really not a bother for them. And I think we can also agree that that quote from the press release about AT&T is not true in any way today. You can pretty much get it and you can watch it on every screen. So, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's funky and, and yes, winners and losers and all that. But I think it's really about this transition. There's a, a like television is like super, influential cultural art form the movies are still a super influential cultural art form and it's just this migration increasingly onto people's devices and increasingly their television sets i'm quoting from the deadline story about you leaving uh, netflix in the autumn of 2021 rivals have sunk billions of dollars into the effort to unseat netflix but the company remains the leader in streaming with 209 million subscribers and a new armload of emmys uh, recently, the company equaled a nearly 50-year-old record set by CBS with 44 total wins, including its first for two series, Drama for the Crown and Limited Series for the Queen's Gambit. Uh, I got to ask how, and again, it's a little wonky, but I'm I'm so lucky to have Professor Siklos. You're wearing oh. multiple hats here. How do they Jeez. internally calculate the profitability of a show? Like it was really worth it for us to sink all of this money in a period, you know, a period sex romp or something like that, you know, back in the day, because we got this many viewers and it made our login this indispensable. How do you attribute it to one investment or one show? I'm sure you get asked all the time. Yeah, sure. And some of, you know, some of it is, you know, slightly secret saucy that I, I still will, will respect that. But I would say in, in broad terms, it's actually not that complicated, which is you have a, you know, it's like the, 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 the uh, the amount of your budget that you spent on the show relative to the the amount of the, your audience that watched it. So let's say it costs two percent of the overall budget of what the company spent in a year, and it's watched by three percent of the audience. That's a that's you know that's a winner. Again, that's a very superficial way of answering your question, but it's 
you know, it's always cost, you know, in any show, any, any cultural product, including probably yours is like, what's the cost of this relative to the amount of money that we bring in or, and, and the, the amount of money is a proxy for the size of the audience sort of divided by whatever you charge for the product. And so Wall Street wants to see subscriber growth and it wants to see pricing power that you're not just losing money ad infinitum to to build this kind of thing. Much the same way Disney was given a pass, oddly enough. 2020 should have been, by any measure, a cataclysmic year for Disney's stock price. Its theme parks are closed. Uh, ESPN is is dealing with a paucity of live sports because of the pandemic, but they go absolutely unleashing Disney Plus on the world and it's growing and the stock price suddenly reflects Disney Plus more than anything else. Yeah, I think that's right. And also, you know, there's a some, you know, press or analysts have said, look, that the the the, the tragedy of what happened last year to you know to theme parks and movie theaters and cruise ships and all of that it 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 also you know what do they they never never waste a crisis or whatever it it allowed them right. to move move more aggressively into the into these uh you know areas of future growth and 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 reorient themselves so i think you know i suspect that it's somewhere in that in that realm of what of what you see happening there I got to take you into a cul-de-sac briefly about the Irishman, which was which <laughs> I really adored. I mean, it was long, indulgent Scorsese. I mean, you had De Niro, Pacino, you had Pesci. Uh, a lot of people out there thought that it was overkill, but I remember spending, you know, was it Thanksgiving two years ago with it and saying, Lord bless you, Netflix. I love that. I mean, you could do quick and easy, like, you know, the floor is lava and everything with kind of cheap turns and everything. Or you could give me like this 20 course meal with all sorts of wine pairings in it. And that must have been a huge turning point. You you talk about the time when House of Cards would have been considered a prestige kind of flag for for Netflix to put up, but then to bring Scorsese in house and have the CGI teams and, and to to spend all of that money and to contend yeah. for Oscars was a whole other business. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. Um, the one thing that I've really I really appreciated uh, during my time there was this idea of like incremental excellence, and like it's it's not like. And I was found like when the press was trying to write about Netflix, like what's the hot? Like there wasn't often a hot new thing, but it was just this like slow and purposeful march to constant improve constant improvement. And, you know, constantly tinkering with the product, making it better, adding some features here and there. And the film and television thing was also, it's just sort of like boiling water that just keeps boiling hotter. Um, the, you know, it's like a, the company is growing. It's growing more outside of the U.S. than it is inside the U.S., but it has this massive potential. And so suddenly you just have more resources to put into bigger projects or and more projects. And then the, you know... The, the the magic of the people who work on that side of the business is how they allocate, you know, how many shows are we making in Korea this year? How many, you know, Irishman movies can we can we afford? And and that's, you know, that's the that's how they judge them that's how they judge success themselves. But um but it didn't seem that much internally, right? Because the year before we'd had um Roma, which was also which, you know, which was also a different kind of a film, but also like it made a kind of a statement about the kinds of projects that that Netflix was was doing and um and it just keeps you know I think you'll see this year there's going to be a bunch more that are you know I think the distinction between it's a it's a kind of theatrical movie and or you know and a, and a quality movie is is um is going away. I got to ask you also the movie theater 
Is that going away? I'm sure you're asked about this all the time after 2020. Is there any point in a movie theater right now? Especially because I could walk into a Best Buy or Walmart and everything and buy a gorgeous 50-inch 4K TV for nothing and not yeah. even pay the cable company all that much. I mean, I put an Apple TV or a Roku or a, a $19 Amazon Fire Stick or whatever the heck it's called and get this stuff from any streamer and 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 truly have the the holy grail of a home movie experience. Yeah, so I I don't have any, you know, my perspective is not that revolutionary. I think this some of the smartest perceptions that I've heard and then, you know, I've been to the movies two or three times since the pandemic eased somewhat here in LA and it's every time it's been with my kids and every time it's been an action movie and every time it's been a movie that's not available on streaming and they get excited and they're willing to, you know, they're 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 begging me to go see this movie before it's available on TV. So I don't know if that's enough of a business to sustain the however many thousands of movie screens there are in, in America. But um, but there's still something there about the excitement of, oh, my gosh, I really need to see, you know, Venom or James Bond or, or whatever it is, because it's, you know, this is the place. And then, you know, the pundits say, well, the numbers are lower than 2019 still. And then they, on the other hand, it's well, we're still in a pandemic. Um, so I don't know the the jury is out. But for me, that's the use case. It's younger action and available only on screens. Full disclosure, you're listening to Richard Siklos, previously VP of Corporate Communications at Netflix. Prior to that, he spent seven years at Time Warner as VP of Corporate Affairs and Strategic Communications and uh, decades as a as a journalist. Uh, decades. The New York Times, right? The New York Times Business Week magazine, Fortune, uh, was your last byline gig before you went to the corporate side. I got to ask, what's next for you? Everybody's asking you right now, and you might be in stealth mode, but uh, I, are you te- are you teaching? Are you going to stay? So, it's an interesting world because you're broadly in content, and you're and I, I got to tell you why I really envy you is because you're at this rare firm that got people to pay and pay more for content. You talk about the holy grail, Time Inc. magazines the world over. The New York Times only recently got people to start paying digitally for this stuff. That has True. been the hardest thing to do is to kind of rest the bone from the dog's mouth. True. I've learned so much. These, I'm honestly, you know, the, the old dog learned some new tricks uh, these last few years. Um, when I started in journalism uh, a long time ago, my first job when I was a journalism student, I worked at a newspaper in Canada where the pages were still sent by pneumatic tube to the to the makeup room, um, which which is shocking to think about today. But in terms of what's next, um, I'm taking a bit of a break. I, li- I really, you know, one thing I've learned is I really enjoy business. Uh, I really enjoy working with great people and I don't, it, you know, I really obviously love these businesses in these industries, um, but I'm open-minded because they're, everything's changing. So I, I couldn't tell you what I'm going to do next is the truth, but I'm taking a, taking a few weeks to, uh, to take, a, I think, a, a well-deserved break. Do you ever look back at the New York Times where, again, we cross paths and for years people were saying that you guys are in, in deep trouble. Your newspaper, you're just going to keep hemorrhaging ad pages and subscriptions in the newspaper and you're never going to convince people to pay you anything for the real cost of the freight of of sustaining this newsroom they've been able to do that especially during the trump administration but they've pivoted into video beautifully they have a a wonderful podcasting presence and they've been picked up by a lot of you know public radio stations they kind of uniquely and and they're not billionaire owned are getting people to pay for their content and all these other smaller newspapers that uh, especially the ones that don't have billionaire saviors are in no similar position. 
Yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, both of those are, are amazing. I, I, you know, the New York times really, I think only turned the corner to, you know, where the skeptics had to admit they were wrong in the last couple of years. Like it took them, it took them a while. And I think, I think being controlled by a family, the Salzberger family helped them into that, to that earlier point about how you need to have the wherewithal to, to make your bet and take some losses while you figure things out. So I think they benefited from that. And then in terms of the smaller papers, you know, I think you mentioned I'm on the board of this nice journalism school in, in New York. And um, it's like, there's so many people who want to do journalism and they're the, you know, and it's just like, you know, they need to be able to make a living out of it basically. And it's, it is, it is increasingly hard. It is definitely increasingly hard. And I, you know, I don't know what happens to, you know, I mean, it's been, it's been us, you know, it's been a wipeout for the last, you know, since you and I were at the Times together, right? I mean, in terms of like big metropolitan uh, American newspapers, you know, just getting smaller and smaller. Um, so I don't, I still don't know where it ends up. Um, and, um, but I'm kind of optimistic because so many people still want to do the work. You know, and curiously, you wrote quite a bit about Rupert Murdoch as you were talking about, you know, covering Fox and, uh, you know, what happened subsequently with News Corp. But for our listeners out there, on the eve of the financial crisis, Rupert Murdoch, the Australian billionaire, Fox News, tabloids, everything, makes this huge bid for uh, News Corp, which owned the Wall Street Journal. I think he overpaid to the tune of $5 billion. I haven't seen him in the public eye in the longest time. And he now owns the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal has kind of held its own. It tends to lose, I, I find, a lot of, of its correspondence to the New York Times which you would have thought was less well capitalized. But the taboo question I have is what happens to the Wall Street Journal and to Fox News after Rupert Murdoch? If, if you were you know, back at the New York Times and you were a media correspondent, this is the kind of stuff that I, I would treat you to a Molson or two and ask you. <laughs> That's a, I'll take you up on it. So look, you know, the journal is actually doing pretty well as a business is my impression. Um, the com- it's still owned by, you know, News Corp split, you know, off of Fox years ago, and then Fox was sold to Disney. And so now there's these two companies, there's, I forget what they call it, Fox Inc. or something, which is uh, the company that owns um, Fox By the way, that's a, foot, that's a footnote. Fox's entertainment's assets were sold to Disney. I mean, we didn't even get into yeah, that. Talk for about the musical billion, chairs, For a mere $85 billion, yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, Disney and, happened to buy that. Yeah, but go ahead. Yeah, it just kind of, <laughs> yeah, that just happened. Um, and by the other footnote was, remember, Fox had tried to buy Time Warner during my time there. Um, totally so, forgot that, um, yeah. Yeah, so that was the other big thing that happened during that era. And um anyway, but News Corp is a, you know, it's it's um a 14 billion dollar company today. They, you know, the journal is probably the biggest single uh, or most valuable piece of it, but they have a bunch of uh, other uh, newspapers in Australia and England and other things. So they've kind of made a they've made a go of it. And I suspect it endures long, you know, it'll always be controversial about whether what Rupert's agenda uh, or uh, has been or will be. But on do the you think his page. children are going to want it? And do you think his children are going to want Fox? And these are the two things that I think about a lot with him. He's, I don't know, he's, he's what is he, almost 90? Is he past 90? He's almost he 90. And I, from what I've heard, he's still, you know, he's still, you know, somewhat uh, engaged and um, definitely still calling the shots. He's just, as you say, he's not as kind of prominent as he once was. I suspect wearing my journalist hat that they do want them. I don't know that they keep them, but if you, you know, I think it's just their, their legacy. It's in their blood. You know, the Lachlan is running Fox and James kind of left the company, um, over, you know, sort of, uh, ideological differences. And, but, you know, there's been some articles about him that certainly indicate that he's still interested 
in the business and, you know, under the right circumstances, who knows, he could be back. So, yeah, I, th I think the Murdochs will be around for a while in some shape or form. I don't know what happens to these businesses. I don't know who the, the natural kind of custodian of a Fox News post Murdoch is because he's just such a unique product of an era um, and there's nobody quite like him. And lastly, I mean, since you used to be running up corporate communications at Time Warner, what's going to happen to CNN? The CNN fit in with HBO and Discovery. It's it's an interesting asset in that it's still a cable cash cow. It still gets tons of eyeballs, especially you know in the wake of of, of Trump and MAGA and January six. But does it get yeah. included? I mean, does it continue on in a in a kind of a, a conglomerate form? Um, I kind of think so. It's interesting. Discovery, at least, I don't know if they still do, but they one of the very smart things David Zaslav, the guy who runs it, did was a few years ago. He said it's the world's largest nonfiction company because it was, you know, it's reality and documentary. CNN is nonfiction. I think if that's the thesis that, you know, nonfiction is a, is a great business to be in, then CNN is one of the great brands in the world. Um, so I just, I, I'm, I'd be more inclined to think they keep it and try to make more of it than, than just sell it. Although it's always been the subject of rumors, as you know, under AT&T, it certainly was. So I think it's, you know, I think it's going to be around, I think, but again, they all have to face the same issue of the audiences moving off of linear, at, you know, and the only question is how quickly are they moving and what demographics are moving and what are these brands doing to, to bring people with them um, onto, you know, onto sort of internet uh, on-demand based platforms. You were listening to Richard Siklos. He is now in stealth mode after four years at VP of Corporate <laughs> Communications at Netflix and prior to that at Time Warner and years at Business Week and the New York Times and Fortune Magazine as a media correspondent. And I also want to tip my hat to you being an adjunct professor at NYU. You're on the board of directors for Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism Foundation and the Committee to Protect Journalists. And you were formerly a director for the Media Council Paley Center for Media and Student Voice Project. Sir, uh, fascinating bio. I'm going to call it the contented life, the contented life. Uh, you should know. Needless to say, you're always welcome on full disclosure. Thank you, Robin. It's been it's been great to uh, catch up with you and talk about this stuff. It's always always never dull. Anytime. Full disclosure. Special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. You can catch us in Northern Virginia and DC on WERA ninety six point seven FM. We're in Asheville, North Carolina on WPVM. We are in Ventura, California on KPPQ. And holler if you too would like us on your air on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Full D Radio. I'm sure I'm still on on Friendster and and Pathfinder and Roadrunner as well. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Thank you.